Thank you guys again. Tremendous job leading us in worship. Really, really appreciate it. It's outstanding. So thank you. <laughs> Studying eschatology, that's a fancy word, by the way. Uh, it's from the Greek word eschatos, which means last days or last things. And eschatology is the study of the end times or last days. And so at Great Hills Baptist Church, over the next few days, weeks, months, and years, we are studying uh, the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Unveiling, the book of Revelation. This weekend, as I'd already finished my sermon, I was thinking about it a lot. And so I got up early this morning and uh, I had to tweak it. I had to be the redactor, the editor, and change some of it. And, and here's the thought that I wanted to change. I was comparing in my mind eschatology to the Biltmore estate. Let, 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 me, let me explain. How many of you ever been to Asheville, North Carolina and seen the Biltmore estate? Wow, many, many of you have. Uh, last year, about, uh, about this time of the year, Ashley and I, my wife, we went to Asheville, North Carolina, and we were in a uh, pastor's and wives' conference having a wonderful time, and they gave us pastors a private tour, gave us a dinner there at the Biltmore estate, and there it is. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing I am, but that is one magnificent, amazing edifice structure. Construction began in 1898, 1899, and uh, it was finished around 1905. And it was built by a man by the name of uh, Vanderbilt, George uh, Vanderbilt, uh, railroad tycoon, magnate, very, very wealthy man. And he modeled it after some of the chateaus in France. And so he built this 250-room estate right there in the Blue Ridge Parkway there in North Carolina. And it is exquisite. It is absolutely breathtaking uh, when you see it. So I jotted down a few things that it contains. Okay, it's over four acres of floor space. Some of you thought you had a big house. That is a big, big house, 35 bedrooms, a 10,000-volume library, which I utterly loved. Ladies, get this, 43 bathrooms. Amen. That is a lot of bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, tapestries that dated back to the 1500s. Massive works of antiquity and art are scattered throughout this uh, mansion. There is a 70-feet ceiling in the banquet room. It is gorgeous. But here's the thing that, that captured me. If you're not careful, you can get caught up in all the minutiae, and you can get caught up in all the tapestries and the rooms and the bedrooms and the bathrooms and the library and the banquet hall. And if you're not careful, you will forget that this is, after all, it's just a house. And so I wanted to show you that one a picture there, and I took some of those pictures and just to remind you that it is one entity, it is one edifice. A lot of times when we're studying eschatology, we can get so caught up in theories, postulations, interpretations, theorems, ideas, commentaries, arguments, if you will. We can get so caught up in the theology and the minutia of eschatology that we forget the main thing. I want to give you the main thing, and it is this. He is coming. He is coming again. And so that's the main thing. And, and, and I want us to remember that. And by the way, I am one of those guys. 
I love theology. I love the minutia. I love the debates. I have my own theories and my pre-trib, pre-millennial eschatology dispensational amen, and I believe it. But listen, I am not so much into that as I am in the fact, the unequivocal fact, the fact that is mentioned 500 times in the Bible, every 25 verses in the New Testament, it resounds with this wonderful word of affirmation, a wonderful word of hope, Jesus Christ is coming again. And so today I want to read for you Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8. You say, Brother Danny, is that all we're going to look at? That's it. That's as far as I could get. I'm just so excited. I'm like Jesse Christ. I just baptized I am so excited. I got up early this morning, could not wait to share this message that God has emblazoned on my heart for you today, especially for you today that are members of Great Hills Baptist Church, and you love the Lord, you love the apocalypse, you love His return. This message is for you. By the way, whenever you study the end times and eschatology, I was talking to Jennifer. We were talking about this just a minute ago, Jennifer O'Chester. She said, I love studying Revelation. It is a book of so much hope. And I thought, you're exactly right, but many people don't look at it like that. They look at all the judgments, and they look at the great tribulation, and they look at the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet, and they begin to get this avalanche of fear and worry and trepidation. But let me tell you something, guys. If you're a child of God, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you should have no phobia. You should have no fear whatsoever because here's the deal. He wins and you win. That should give you great hope and great courage today. Now, now listen, if you don't know him, oh, no, wait a minute. If you don't know him, if you're walking at a guilty distance from him, then there should be trepidation, there should be concern, there should be fear because the next cataclysmic, unimaginable, words fail me event that will happen on God's chronology is when he turns to his son and says, go get my children. And when that day comes, it's going to be on. It's going to be absolutely amazing. And if you know him, it's wonderful. If you don't, you need to know him, all right? You need to come to know him fast, quickly, because as the Scripture says, behold, the Lord is coming soon. So here's our text. It's Revelation 1, 7 and 8. And it says these words, behold, do. By the way, that is an aorist active imperative. That is, a, that is an imperative verb it is, behold, it's, in other words, it's, hello, hey, hey, can I have your attention for just a moment? Behold, do, he is coming. Can we just stop right there? I, that, that's really it. That's the Biltmore estate in a nutshell. That, that is what I want to, in, to emblazon on your mind. He is coming. Now, here are some descriptive phrases of his coming. He is coming with the prepositional phrase, with clouds, and every eye will ophthalmos, ophthalmos, where we get the word ophthalmology. Every eye will see him, even those or they who pierced him. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Copto, it literally means to cut. It means to be wounded. It means to have this, this palpable, overwhelming sense of fear and dread. 
The nations of the earth will mourn because of him, Jesus Christ. And then John says, na, amen. Na is the Greek word, even so. And then he says, amen. And then this, this wonderful phrase, and people debate, who is saying this? It's, some say, well, it's red letters in my Bible. Jesus must be saying it, but not necessarily. This may be God the Father speaking when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, watch this, who is, who was, who is to come. Woo! I love this word right here. The Panto Crater. The Almighty God. I assert that my son is coming again. All the demons of hell cannot stop it. Satan himself cannot stop it. This sense of unbelief and denying who he is, it can never stop this great fact he is coming again. When you look at Revelation chapter 1, last week we noticed the address. This is the benediction or the blessing, the prologue, the introduction to the entire book. John spends about nine verses just introducing uh, this chapter. And we noticed last week, if you weren't here, in the address, we talked about grace and peace. How John says, Chorus and Arene, this may the God of grace and peace, may he overflow you, may he give you all of these things. And by the way, remember, he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which really are representative, and, and they are literal, accurate, historical churches, but they also are representative of all of God's people, all of God's churches. And he says, blessings upon you and grace and peace. And the source of those blessings, as we noticed last week, one of the most powerful Trinitarian passages in all the Bible is God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. He is the source of these blessings. And now we pick up in verse 7, and he gives us a, a word of assurance. In these verses, verses 7 and 8, we have a word of affirmation, a word of assurance, a word that, that is concrete, that is bedrock, that is written within the Word of God, that, that we can bank on it, that we can know without a shadow of a doubt. We can be assured that the same Jesus Christ who came the first time will indeed come a second time. And so what I want to do for the remainder of my message today is just kind of walk through verses 7 and 8 and give you just some salient characteristics or just some marks or attributes of when macro now, when macro speaking, Jesus Christ comes again. First of all, let's look at the importance of his coming. And the importance is encapsulated in that one word, idou, I-D-O-U. It's interesting here that John, just like Jesus did in Matthew 24, 30, John combines two very prominent Old Testament texts, and he combines them into one sentence. Those two texts, by the way, are Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I put the, the second one, the latter, on the screen because I want you to see the similarity between what John is saying in 1.7 as to what the prophet Zechariah said in 12.10. Here it is. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Now watch this. 
then they will look on me whom they pierced. Do you think John has this in mind? Absolutely. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn. Remember? Same, same word, same, almost terminology verbatim. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This word, behold, or look, or adieu, it is used 26 times in the apocalypse alone. Now, if you're taking notes and you're, you're writing your own running commentary in the book of Revelation, by the way, you're going to have a lot of notes by the time we're finished, all right? You're, you're going to have about a hundred, a couple of hundred pages of notes. This word, Idu, behold, is mentioned 26 times in the apocalypse alone. And Dr. Robert Thomas, in his great commentary, says these words. This word indicates a special divine revelation or intervention. The participle fastens the reader's attention on the importance of the forthcoming announcement. In other words, we would do it like this in English. Hey, can I have your attention? Hey, listen to me real quick. I've got something extremely important that I would like to communicate with you. Can I please have your undivided attention? All right, so that signifies the importance of what is about to be said. Number two is the reality. And these are these three simple declarative words that I just cannot get out of my mind. He is coming. Now notice, John did not say he has come, or John did not say he will come. He just said he is coming. He uses the present tense in the Greek New Testament for a reason. He wants every epoch, every generation, every era... Every malu of Christendom, he wants us to live, if you will, on this eschatological precipice. He wants us, if you will, just anticipating and looking with, with great joy and, and great peace that at any moment, Jesus Christ is coming. And, and so John captures that with this present tense. He is coming for the struggling believers there in Asia Minor. And by the way, John's writing to a group of people, young people, they, they are under extreme persecution. Uh, the, the emperor's name is Domitian. It's A.D. 95, and he is a ruthless despot. He is a tyrant. I mean, he is an evil man, and he hates Christians, and he, and he wants to destroy them because they will not bow down and worship him. And so John writes these words as a word of, of salve, of a word of, of comfort and balm and healing. He just says, listen, all of this will indeed one day, it will change. Because all these things will be reversed. And as I thought about that, I made the following notes in my message. And I, and I wanted to capture this because I want you to hear this. For the suffering saint who's battling cancer today, he is coming. For the weary pilgrim, you're trying to be strong. You're trying to do the right thing. And then you're in the midst of so much ungodliness and paganism and humanism and secularism and atheism and agnosticism. And yes, you live in Austin, Texas. Amen. Welcome to our city. And you go, wow, I don't know if I can hang on anymore. Man, I don't know if I can keep living for God in such a pagan city. Can I tell you something today? He is coming again. Don't you lose heart. Don't you, don't, don't you dare lose heart. You be faithful. He is coming for the person who's brokenhearted. 
and your spouse has left you. And I know this to be a fact. He has left you. Can I tell you this? Jesus is coming. For those with enormous pressure, and you have fear, you have debt, you have doubt, Jesus is coming. For the faithful saint who is persevering in prayer, and you're being a faithful witness, let me tell you something. He is coming, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with affirmation, with declaration, with no ambiguity, unequivocally, Jesus is coming. Woo! That is a fact. That is not up for debate. The King of kings is coming. I tell you, I should have told y'all before him. Whenever I preach on this stuff, I get all fired up. All right, I tell you, I just get all spiritually discombobulated and just have a little bit of a, of a holy, Bapticostal fit. Welcome to Great Hills. Amen. We're glad you're here. All right, uh, the, the, um, the importance, you do, behold, the reality, he is coming. Next, if you're taking notes, write these words down. A characteristic of his coming in the singular. Aren't you with me? A defining characteristic of Jesus coming again are clouds. You said, I noticed that. And I thought, you know, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, 40. He said, or 30, he said, I am coming in the clouds. Whenever you see clouds in the Bible, most of the time, it represents, symbolizes, listen to me, this is very important, the power and the presence of of God. And so when you go through the Old Testament, let's, let's just go through Cloudology 101 for a few minutes. All right? Let me, let's do the study of clouds for, for just a moment. For example, in Exodus 13, the children of Israel were led by a, uh, by a pillar of fire by night and by a what during the day? By a cloud. Exactly. Exodus 19:16, when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, we read of thundering. We read of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and a very thick cloud. When they dedicated the tabernacle, and then subsequent to that, when they dedicated the temple, the Bible says on both auspicious occasions, there were these clouds. And it represents, and some say it's, it's tied into this Shekinah glory of God, this palpable overwhelming presence of Almighty God. Now keep that in mind when you come to the New Testament. When He comes again, He says, I'm coming in the clouds. That signifies the power and the presence of God. One writer put it this way, and I like this. He said, the clouds, quote, picture Christ's descent from heaven. More significantly, they symbolize the brilliant light that accompanies God's presence. A light so powerful that none can see it and live. The appearance of the blazing glory of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. The appearance of His glory and the lesser brilliance of innumerable angels and the redeemed who accompany Him will be both an indescribable and terrifying pageant. End of quote. He is coming. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it especially in the apocalypse, this revealing, this unveiling. And one of these defining characteristics of eschatology is He's coming in clouds. And D is the scope of His coming. Now, I want you to notice with me some 
three statements about the encompassing scope of Jesus' return. All right here in verse 7. Number one, every eye will see him. Number two, even those who pierced him. And then number three, the nations, the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. Number one, every eye will see him. Now, I like what Dr. David Jeremiah says at this point. He says, yes, literally, wherever you are on planet earth, you will see him without the aid of media, satellites, or television. Now, to me, this is miraculous. In fact, one writer that I read said, and I quote him, the explanation of this belongs to the imponderables of God, end of quote. In other words, God's going to do this in such a magnificent way who knows, maybe when he comes, and I remember the context was Revelation 19, the, the battle of Armageddon. I mean, he is, he is coming, and he descends on that white horse in some miraculous way. God is going to pull this within, not our peripheral vision, but in our central vision. We're going to, well, I wonder, I wonder if God's going to do it in such a way that every person's eyes, it will be almost as if it is this close to their face. They will see him when he comes. Every eye. Number two, it says, and those who pierced him. Now, not everybody believes this, but I am among those who believe this refers to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. I know that Christ died for our sins and the Romans executed him with the Jews' permission. I get all that. But I also understand that there is a real sense in which those who pierced him, if you think back to uh, Zechariah 12.10, could refer to the nation of Israel. I'm among those who believe that at this time or just prior to this time, during the seven years of great tribulation, there is going to be a massive turning there's going to be a turning of the Israeli people to Jesus Christ. I really believe that. I know what Romans says. Their hearts are hard now so that we are grafted into this vine. But Paul says in 11.26 of Romans, and all Israel will be saved. I, I believe that that day is coming. And those who look upon him, they, those who pierced him. You know, Revelation 12, and we'll talk about this in about 10 years when we get to Revelation 12. Hey, listen, you spend 45 minutes on one verse. Hello? I mean, do the math. I mean, it's, it's just going gonna, gonna to take a while. But, but anyhow, Revelation 12 talks about these 144,000 witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses tell me that's their people. That's them. And I say, well, which tribe of Israel are you from? Because it mentions the 12 tribes. They go, well, maybe it's not us. It's not you. Okay, it, it is not you. It is these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they're preaching. And I believe it's at that point that all the nations of the earth, the gospel is spread. And I believe it's at that point. That many Jews, those who pierced him, they will have this sense of conviction and they will believe on Christ. And I'm not alone. There are many, many scholars who believe this. And I quote one who says, Israel's mourning here, noted in Zechariah 12.10, will be that of genuine repentance. Many Jews will be saved during the tribulation. This is John MacArthur, by the way. I don't know if, how many of y'all read him. I, I'm a proponent of John MacArthur. In many ways, but not every way. Many Jews will be saved during the tribulation, both the 144,000 and their converts. And many people believe that it is at this moment, at the second coming, will be their time of salvation. It will be in that day. Now, this is Zechariah 13.1. 
It will be in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. Zechariah 13, 1. Every eye will see him. Those who pierced him, they will look upon him. And then thirdly, if you'll notice in verse 7, it says, And the nations of the earth will mourn. The Greek word is a graphic word. It, it means, it's kopto. It means to cut. It means to be severely wounded. And so the nations of the earth. Now, by the way, let me, let me paint the picture for you for just a minute. There's coming a day. When there will arise a man right out of the pit of hell called the Antichrist. And he will rule this world. He will be the most charismatic, convincing, nice looking, amazing individual. That you, and if it was possible, he would deceive even the elect, the Bible says. And so this man is going to come on the world scene. And he is going to deceive the nations of the world. They will take the mark of the beast, 666, and they will place it upon their bodies... And, and they will be in rebellion to the Christ as they follow the Antichrist. And they're going, to, they're going to mass this amazing army. And they're going to come together and they're going to fight against the king. Okay, And when he comes, there's going to be this over... Remember what Martin Luther said? And one little word shall... A mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall what? Fail him. All right, When he comes... Shazam, brothers and sisters. There ain't no battle at all. The Son of God just says, boom, be gone, and it's over. I mean, he just, he just immediately defeats his foes, his enemies. And so they mourn. They're like, oh, my word, we are on the wrong side of the battle. And it's too late. One writer says this carries the sense of all the families of the earth. They mourn over him because of remorse because of the severity of their punishment. The return of Christ is anything but a comfort to those who continue in their rebellion against Him. Listen, if you own a house, and you rent the house, and um, you have tenants, they're living in it, and you show up unexpectedly, and let's just say they're college students, all right? And man, they are trashing the house. They're punching holes in the walls. I mean, the carpet's ripped up. I mean, they've got, st I mean, and all of a sudden you show up. Now, let me just ask you a question, all right? Now, just be real. Just us boys and girls here today. L let me just ask you something. If you're the owner of the house, will you have just a little bit of anger about you? you say, brother, I'm going to have more than anger. I'm going to be laying some hands on some college students say, yes, that's my house, and they've trashed my house. Now, I want you to think globally, cosmically. This is God's house. He has created this world, just like he said. And he has revealed himself most conspicuously to mankind. He has revealed himself through nature, through history, through the moral compass of man, the very conscience of man. Furthermore, that's just general revelation. In special revelation, he has revealed himself through the Word of God, the Bible, okay? And the living Word of God, his Son. He has done everything that he possibly can do 
to shout from the heavens that he is a benevolent, awesome, merciful, wonderful God. He has created us. He has sent his son to redeem us. He has done everything for us, but by and large, most have, most are, most will reject him. And when he comes, there will be judgment. And you cannot blame him, can you? You can't blame him. He has given every vestige of grace that he possibly can. But man, in their rebellion, they have rejected him. And when he comes, every eye will see him. And many, if not most, will mourn. The one who was rejected, stay with me, scorned, spit upon, despised, ridiculed, crucified will come again, and there will be a cosmic sense of dread. I'm about to say something that's probably going to get me in trouble. Um, Because we live in such a pluralistic culture. Have you ever noticed, as, as time draws near, that Whenever something controversial comes up and, and Christians are the ones that are pinged, that are nailed, you ever thought about that? This past week with the big announcement of the defensive tackle who says he's a, he's a homosexual. I mean, I mean, even on ESPN it says, um, even that great uh, theological network ESPN, they, they had an interview on there of, of Skip Bayless and uh, Stephen A. Smith. And, and they were talking about it. Yeah, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And one guy came on there, he says, well, I'll tell you what I think about it. The only people who not for this is those conservative Muslims. No, that's not what he said. Those conservative Buddhists. That's not what he said. Those conservative Mormons. That's not what he said. He said the only people who are against this are those conservative Christians. <laughs> And I thought to myself, that's really not true because the last I checked, Mr. Vladimir Putin is neither conservative nor a Christian. But, but anyhow, that's, that's another statement. <laughs> when you lift up your eyes on that day, when you see him, I'm trying to tell you who he is. It's not Muhammad. Because Muhammad did not die for anybody. It's not Joseph Smith, as delusional as he was. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's, it, it's nobody. But what? And when he comes, you'll recognize him because he's the one with the nail-pierced hands. And the pierced feet and the pierced side. And he has eyes like a flame of fire. And you must, you must admit, at least that preacher warned me And he told me that the one who comes is none other than Jesus Christ. There is an affirmation of his coming in verse 7. And I'm going to finally finish uh, verse 7. The affirmation of his coming is... Synonymia. Synonymia. Dictionary.com does not have that word. I found that word just to help you if you're going to take your SAT and your ACT coming up pretty soon, juniors. Uh, it means 
It means a figure of speech that gives amazing strength to what has just been said. The synonymia is, even so, amen. In other words, John is using his best language to say, what I have shared with you will absolutely happen precisely as I'm telling you that it will happen. Nah means assuredly, amen. It means uh, God will do it, so it shall be. And so this is just an affirmation, a reiteration, if you will, a summary, a, a strong statement to say, what I have shared with you, even so. You see it in your Bibles, right? Verse 7, even so, nah is the Greek word, N-A-I, amen, so it shall be. Okay, next, and this is my last thing I want to share with you, is the certainty of his coming in verse 8. In verse 8, Almighty God makes this revelatory statement about his being, about who he is. And a good paraphrase that I read on this verse goes like this. Ah, the Almighty Lord of hosts, the unchangeable God, will accomplish all of my will, and I will fulfill my word, and I will execute all my judgments, and this is who I am. Number one, he says, he describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, we know what that is. I mean, many of you, you've had your fraternities, your sororities, your clubs. I mean, you know what an Alpha is. You know what an Omega is. You know that is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and that is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. If we were, if we were using the vernacular in English, we would say from A to Z. You know what this speaks to me of? This speaks to me of God's omniscience. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is everything in between. Who is it that's making these bold predictions about the future? Well, it's the one and only Almighty God. He, is, he was, He is, He forever will be. And He says, based on who I am, based on the authority of my nature and my person, these things will come to pass. It speaks of His omniscience. Number two, who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks of God's omnipresence, His transcendence, His eternality, if you will. He has always been, He is right now, and He will come. And by the way, we studied this in our systematic theology class uh, last semester. And we talked about God and time. Really, time is for man. God is beyond space and time. With God, as Wayne Grudem says, God is. (laughs) Everything is before him. Right now, in the past, in the future, he just just is, okay? And this speaks to me of his omnipresence. Ooh, here comes the last word. Son, I'm telling you, I'm about to explode. This last word in verse 8, please underline it. It, it, The translation is the almighty. The Greek word is pantocrator. Pan means all, kratos means strength. You know, I told my family, if I ever get a German shepherd, I'm going to name that German shepherd kratos. I got outvoted four to one. Nobody wants to name, and we we put the down payment on it. I mean, that that dog is coming. Yes. And I'm going to bring it to my deacons' meetings. If I have any mean deacons, but I don't, I don't. And I would love to name that dog Kratos. Now listen, you don't name a poodle Kratos, all right? You don't. 
No, no, no. You don't name no little, little nappy thing Kratos. You name Kratos because Kratos is the word strength and, and power. And, it, and it, to me it speaks of God's omnipotence. He is the almighty, the all-powerful God. Oh, for sake of time, I'm just going to have to skip a whole section of this sermon and ask you to get the manuscript if you want it. If you have trouble sleeping, get it, read it. It might help you. But I'm going to have to move on because there's something really important in verse 8 that I want you to see. And in verse 8, I want you to, I'm going to do a little test with you, okay? Let me give you a little pop test. It's the teacher, it's the professor coming out of me. Okay, open up your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, can we put verse 8 back up on the screen for just a moment? In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1, I want you to count the number of times the definite article is used. And that's all I can say. You say, brother, I have no idea what a definite article is. Do y'all know what a definite article is? They're brilliant. They're Baylor students, sick them bears, amen. They know what this is, all right? So count the number of times beginning in I am, okay, with me? Start counting. Just give you a little help. All right, keep going. Roll, roll the next slide. How many times is the definite article used? Six. Six. Now, you say, Brother Dan, what, what's the difference in a definite article and an indefinite article? I'll tell you about 15 points. 15 points. I was taking German in grad school, scared to death. A country boy from Alabama studying German. Amen. They said, you got to take this class. You're going to get a PhD. You got to take this class. You better pass it. And I was scared to death. So I got, took my first exam, and Guberk Beschnitt was my teacher's name. She's from Mississippi, Brother Terry. I'm just kidding. She's not. I mean, she is as German as you can get. And Guberk Beschnitt said, give me the definite article of these 15 German words. And I got on it, and I gave her the indefinite article for every single one of those words, and I was proud of it. And when I got my test back, I had like an 85, because the only thing I missed on the test was that. Well, I'm done now. I cannot make an A for the rest of the semester, because you're just done. You only have a couple of tests. And I said, Gubert, please, you, you, you see I got all of these rights. She said, yes, you did. But from now on, you're going to know the difference. I just wanted to lay hands on her for just a minute. But you, you're going to know the difference between a definite article and an indefinite. Here's the difference. The definite article is always the. The indefinite article is always what? A. Y'all all right? <laughs> this is no indefinite article kind of guy. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the almighty God, and he is the one that is speaking. And I know that in a postmodern pluralistic culture like John lived in, where they demanded emperor worship and all the other worship, and like Paul lived in Acts 17 and they had that plurality of the pantheon of gods there on the Parthenon, and it's kind of like us in India a couple of weeks ago when we would go out and we would share Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those people would say, oh, Jesus, man, Jesus is just all right with me. I mean, they say, bring him on in and we'll put him up here with the 330 million gods and goddesses and idols. We'll just bring Jesus right on in to our pantheon. And I said, there is a problem. 
He is not one God among many gods. He is the, you with me, definite article, the one true God. You say, you can't say that. You cannot say that and be an intellectual thinking theologian in today's world. That is so myopic. That is so provincial. That is so knuckleheaded. That is so hard-headed. You can't tell me that there's only one God and only one day down, one way to heaven. There are a bunch of gods, man. For heaven's sake, India has 330 million gods. Who are you to say that they're all wrong and he's right? I want to tell you, he's right. He is the one true God. He is. He has done everything in His power to communicate that to us. But we're so open-minded, our theological brains have fallen out as a nation, and we just believe everything. We just believe everything, every whim, every doctrine that comes along. And I'm going to tell you something, you can't read Revelation and believe that, because He is the one true God. Now, the last thing I want to say is this. If you don't believe it, you better be right. Because if you're wrong, you lose everything. You know, it's interesting how Jesus in Mark chapter 8, he, he takes this eschatological end times and he relates it to what we do today. And he says, you know, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Let me read it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's pretty, that's pretty heady stuff. Jesus is talking about eternal issues. And then he says, for whoever is ashamed of me. Are you with me? And my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I mean, you can't get more myopic and provincial and narrow-minded than that. But if it's true, then everybody's eternal destiny hinges on what they do with him. You know, it's interesting to me, as I'm about to sweat to death up here, it's interesting to me that most people do not reject Jesus Christ based on theological or philosophical reasons. Did you know that? It's not that we don't know who he is. It's just that we don't like what he says. I would argue that the number one reason people don't accept Christ today, and, and, and it's not theological or philosophical, it's by and large far more moral. I got an email this week from a, from a friend of mine. It's almost like another lifetime, but Brian came to faith in Christ about 12 years ago. He's a very successful, very immoral man. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Extremely ungodly man. Very wealthy, living life on the max, and God messed him up totally. God radically saved him and he basically sold all that he had, and now he just, he's just an evangelist for, for Christ. And he sent me a, a note, and he said, I, I want to tell you about this guy that I just led to the Lord. His name is Manuel. And Manuel is a gang leader out of Los Angeles. Well, first of all, he came from Mexico. He made his way to L.A., and for somehow he made his way on the East Coast here in North Carolina. And Manuel came to me, and I, and I shared the gospel with him, and then I took him through a 
a 10-week discipleship course. And he sat down and he wrote a letter to his family back in Mexico describing what had happened to him here in America. And this is what he said. Son. He said, This is the prayer I prayed when I gave my life to God. Lord Jesus, I confess that I have sinned against you by my own independent way, rebelling against you and trusting in myself. I have not known you as you really are, but instead I have sought the God that I always wanted. I am now beginning that there is a great difference. Forgive me, Lord, I open the door to my life and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Take control of my life and make me the man that you want me to be. Listen, friends, that's what it means to humble yourself, to say, God, you know more than I do. You're smarter than I am. And if you say it's this way, I yield myself to you, and I believe and I accept you as my Savior and as my King. And I just can't help pass this moment without asking you, is there anybody here today, whether you're in the choir or whether you're out here, or whether you're watching on DirecTV, or you're watching on the internet. And I say up here because I was 19, a ministerial student, when I gave my life to Christ. So I don't want to miss any opportunities, okay? If you're here today and you're like Jesse Kreitz, and by the way, Jesse, the guy I baptized just a few weeks ago, he, he walked right down the aisle, he said, I'm giving my life to Christ. I'm, he's a classical guitarist. He's a smart dude, talented dude. I said, have you met with our worship leader? And he said, yes, I have. I've talked to him. So good. We may be seeing him one day up here. He comes and he says, he, he says I, I'm giving my life to Christ. And the thing I want to do is I want to make sure that I let the whole world know that I'm not ashamed of him. How about you? Would you like to give your life to the Lord this very day, this very moment? You said, Brother Danny, I, I'm kind of like Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin said of George Whitfield, he said, you know, I don't believe what he believes but I sure believe that he believes what he believes. I want to tell you something, friend. I really do believe this. I believe with all my heart there's coming a day where either you know him and you go to heaven or you don't know him and you go to hell, okay? So if you don't know him, why don't you receive him right now? Let me, let me help you. Let's pray together, okay? Oh, dear God in heaven, thank you for each person that is here today. Thank you, Lord, that it's not an accident that you have brought people to this place at this time to hear this message about the amazing God that you are. Lord, I'm praying now as you convict people's hearts of sin and rebellion, that God, you would soften them and that you would reveal to them how much you love them. And Jesus Christ, you would just be irresistible to them. They would say, I must believe. I have to believe. God, you've done everything that you possibly can do. So maybe you just pray this prayer with me. Kind of like Manuel, you would just say something like this. Dear God, I know I'm lost. I know I'm trying to do this, this thing called life on my own. I'm trying to find a God that fits my life. And I'm sorry. This day, February the 16th, 2014, I give my life to you unashamedly. I want to live for you, and if it's so be it, I want to die for you in Jesus' name. Now listen, friend, if you prayed that prayer with me, and you meant it, now you're not j jerking my chain or messing around me, you really meant it, 
that I want to commend you. I want to honor you. I want to meet you. And I want to baptize you or have one of our pastors baptize you and say, God bless you and welcome to the family of God. Others of you are here today and you'd say, well, Brother Danny, I'm, I tell you, I, I'm kind of one of those guys, if Jesus were to come back right now, and I, w- I would be kind of embarrassed. I would be ashamed. And I just, I just need to get my life right with the Lord. Listen, friend, that's why we're here. I mean, that's why this choir came today. They sang, oh, the majesty, glory of your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They were singing. I am preaching. We are praying for you that you would say, God, I dedicate myself afresh and anew. Today is a day of decision. And I don't want to miss this moment. God, I want to capture this moment. So maybe you're here today and you would stand in a moment. You'd come. You'd come to this altar. Let us pray with you. You'd come, take one of these counselors by the hand and say, please pray for me that I would give my life to Christ and I would live my life for Christ. Oh, God, this is such a message of immediacy and urgency. And, Lord, I was praying that if this is the last sermon that I ever preach, I want to make sure, God, that I communicate clearly who you are. Lord, it's becoming a dangerous profession to be a pastor in America today. And God, if this message costs me my life, so be it. For the glory of King Jesus, I pray that their blood would never be on my hands, that I have told them clearly the truth. Not my opinion, not my philosophy, but what the living Word of God has clearly, unmistakably said to them. May it be a day of salvation, and this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.